Welcome back once again to Global.Science, our podcast on science education. I'm Lev Hordisky. I'm Fabia Battistuzzi. And today's question is, Fabia, are you into politics? Um, not really. Mostly because being Italian, we learn very early on that politics is something that is better to ignore because politicians do whatever they want anyway and they don't listen to us. So that's pretty much has been my experience in politics. But I've always been kind of curious about the fact that it seems like in general, most politicians have a very, either a very strange or uh, almost no requirements to become politicians. And so in a lot of cases, you have these politicians that make these very important decisions, especially when it comes to science policies, and they don't really understand the science. So they, they can't because they don't have the background. Uh, and this sadly doesn't happen only with science. So it's politics is something that is uh, Frustrating, extremely important, but also extremely frustrating to me. <laughs> and now you have the American politics mixed on top of that because you're an American now. Yes, which means now I need to actually start reading up on various candidates and actually making decisions, which I didn't have to do for the past 10 years. So that's going to be interesting to see because it's a very different mechanism of the American politics compared to the Italian one. How does it compare? Well, the, the idea that there are two major parties, the independents, have, I, what I gathered is that the independents, nobody really cares about them that much. So there the, are the two what major, now? The, what the, now? the independent, the independent party. What, uh, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the fact that there are two major parties and the candidates align with the parties, it's, it's kind of odd to Italians because in Italy, well, when I was in Italy, we are used to have, you know, 10, 20, 30 parties and they all get a little bit of votes and then they have to create these giant coalitions that then fall apart in matters of a few months. So it's, it's a very, very different system. So now the question is, since this is a science education podcast, why are we talking about politics? Well, that's what our guest is going to tell us all about. <laughs> Excellent. That is true. And our guest today is Dr. Tara Lennon, my co-collaborator on the Greenworks Project at Science Voices. She is a senior lecturer in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. Welcome to the show, Tara. So happy to be with both of you. Thanks for having me on. All right. Excellent. We're starting the show already with sarcasm. So... <laughs> <laughs> Been working together for many years, so um, and uh, it's it's curious why we're working together because I'm an earth scientist and you do public policy. So why are we working together? I I won you in a grant. It was so great. Oh, that's true. So <laughs> I was the prize. <laughs> it was a surprise. I had this weird class, this diplomacy simulation class where I broke students into groups of fictitious nations, of uh, different ideological, you know, bents. And then I'd throw them through a bunch of uh, simulated events uh, there where they'd have to make some kind of collective action uh, solutions, creative solutions um, on their own. So I wanted to, uh, the class was fun, but I knew it could be better. And so I applied for a grant to digitize or gamify um, what was already sort of interactive class 
And, um, and so the prize was uh, having uh, Lev as an instructional designer and his uh, computer programming sort of team um, work with me. And uh, yeah, it was a great collaboration. Was, I, I thought I specialized in pedagogy, but I learned a lot about <laughs> um, teaching through discovery uh, through Lev's group. Yeah, and I think that's, I remember, awesome. yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I just said, it sounds wonderful. <laughs> Not they're working with Lev apart, but the, the gamifying part. <laughs> I remember His ideas looking, was good. <laughs> I remember looking through the projects, and this was the one I liked, because I, I had gotten into politics and international uh, diplomacy a long time ago as kind of a side interest. And I know in a lot of conferences, we, get, we had been getting into um, how to talk to politicians about your science, because there were a lot of decisions that were being made that were uh, disregarding scientific expertise. And I just remember looking at some of your scenarios, the climate change scenario, and your climate change scenario was, oh, the canal on this continent is going to get flooded. And I was like, oh, we can make this so much worse. <laughs> yeah, because eventually, I mean, entire military bases were wiped out and cities were evacuated with, you know, sort of riots and military needed to bring it, you know, be brought in. So, yes, uh, yeah. uh, I did a number on your fictitious, uh, fictitious uh, continent. Yes. <laughs> and the students could see it. What I loved about that digital interface is they could see their borders, cities, et cetera. And then a love simulation, sort of the digital um, side of climate change. He'd sort of fast forward and say, well, thanks to all your, you know, polluting energy. Now, you know, here are your borders. Here's your lost, you know, cities. Here's your um, salinated uh, farmlands that no longer can give you economic benefit because all these resources were sort of operational parts within it. And yeah, he just wiped them out. So students would see the potential impact of the energy policies and they he'd let them practice in a sense so do trial runs and then they'd say oh my gosh no we gotta like now that we see what happens to us we've got to change our energy policies that that sounds excellent i i wish we could have this sort of simulations for everybody because sometimes you really need to show people the impact of their decisions not even in the far far future we're talking about 10 20 years here it's not even that far and but most people if they don't see it it just doesn't exist and some of so them were oh sorry go ahead no go ahead so a few students were were overly optimistic because Lev, if I remember right, in a few cases, the rainfall increased for a very few number of countries. So they actually increased productivity. So they're like, so some students were like, well, sure, that's going to be us or, you know, you know, so anyway, they, they ignored all the negative, sought one minute chance of the positive and like ran with it. Well, and I would imagine that in, uh, um, in a field like yours, the things globally, about you know consequences that individuals make or individual countries make it's true that some countries may actually get better i mean even with climate change as we know it places that are deserts are not going to be deserts but that's just because places that are not deserts are going to become deserts so it's you know if you think locally yeah you may be one of the few lucky ones that actually gets better but a lot of the other ones are going to get worse and thinking about this global perspective is, is uh, really important and something that scientists I think are fairly good at 
because we kind of see, especially geoscientists, we kind of see Earth has one thing. It's not one part of Earth, it's, it's one planet. And so we have to think of it in, uh, in a very global way. I agree. And the students, uh, the, the nation format, I even teach this aspect in my class, is almost is outdated uh, in terms of like, you know, it plays, obviously, people are, you know, we're internationalists rise, you know, so the, the nation seems very important for, for group identity and security, but for policy and reality, and even if you start thinking of multinational corporations that sort of cross borders and aren't held accountable, you know, like, so it, it becomes less analytically useful the more you, you look at it, besides, you know, um, corrupt authoritarian leaders that want to, you know, foment nationalism. <laughs> Very <laughs> useful for that. <laughs> exactly. That little aspect of that we prefer it wouldn't exist, but unfortunately it's there. <laughs> right. So you've had experience in, so when you talk about how scientists and politicians communicate, you actually have experience that's relevant here and you've actually observed how this happens and, and that it's apparently horrifying. Yes, um, I, prior to coming to ASU, uh, after, after I got my PhD, I ended up uh, sort of staying in Arizona and it worked out that I worked for the, it's called the Auditor General's Office. Think of it as a nonpartisan research branch of our state legislature. In the US, if any um, scientists are familiar with it, the GAO does the same thing for Congress. So when Congress wants to know sort of just the facts uh, about an issue, they send off the GAO and then they, they come and testify. So we would write reports for our state legislature. Um, and to Fabio, one of Fabio's earlier points, and uh, half of which might have a college degree, you know, in terms of the politicians that represent us, they're representing values of people. They're not representing, I don't even know, um, you know, general education levels or, or policy experts. They're, they aren't the experts. They are the decision makers that are there because of their values. They rely on technocrats to do and, and legislative staff to sort of know some, some of the facts. So we were sort of part of that technocratic group. We were sent to research an issue and then testify. When we did, uh, it was pretty horrifying um, to see, we had to write all our reports at the seventh to eighth grade level. And, and not just because, you know, it's not like all these legislators are, are, are um, unintelligent, but they, uh, they're very busy. They don't have time. They aren't looking into the details. They want something um, quick and easy to read. So I learned quickly to present to them in a way that was so clear and direct. And even if I had um, nuanced data, uh, all of my effort was spent translating that nuanced data to something that was sort of clear, actionable, um, and as direct as possible. In that process, I would watch other testimony, in particular, a lot of academics, ASU might have something to say about you know, one of the topics and their researchers would come. And I saw, unfortunately, one eyes roll for the legislator because they weren't even sort of open in a sense to these, to the ivory tower coming to lecture to them. But, but unfortunately, in many cases, they came to lecture to them. So they approached the process of talking to decision makers as one of, you know, they're lost in their own world. So whether it was bad intention or they just were unaware of the, of the situation and the, the approach they needed to take, their message was completely lost most of the time. So if you imagine their testimony is particularly valuable for the topic at hand, but they didn't deliver it in a clear, concise way 
with sensitivity to, you know, like they didn't read their report, you know, they would have assumed that the legislators read more than they really did. And they didn't go the extra mile to convey um, their message and recommendations to that committee. So yeah, there was a total missed opportunity, um, a little bit of fault on both sides. And I, I mean, I can very easily imagine this happening at every level. I, I'm curious though, in your um, sort of experience, when you said you, you had to learn how to present these facts at you know, seventh and eighth grade level, uh, a lot of um, scientific results are nuanced and they have exceptions and they are complex. How do you boil down that complexity without an oversimplification that ends up being incorrect? Oh, it's a good question. There's a there's a process of the review process, you know. So there's sort of a written process, and then there's a prep for the oral process. So when present presenting, the written process goes through uh, where we have to have our 40 page, let's say, report on topic. Well, that has to include single page summaries of every section and then another iteration. So it's almost four iterations of the same information distilled into fewer words. And in that review process, some editor is trying to edit it to make it clean and sharp. Well, they, in so doing, they lost important technical nuances that suddenly made that statement incorrect. So what we'd have to do is look at it again and say, no, we can't say that. So it was an ongoing deliberation about what you can say and for it to be technically accurate. So if you mind, it's sort of like watering down something, but not lying is sort yeah. of what, I, I think that's one of the better ways to put it. And similarly, when we'd have to present, we would have to have a 15 minute pre presentation prepared and then we'd have to create a five minute one and a three minute one also, because sometimes you get there and they don't have 15 minutes of time that you have five minutes. So what can you convey in five minutes? So that presentation went through the exact same process. Wow. See, it's, it's, it's curious though that uh, faculty would have or academics in general would have a hard time doing that because this is almost the same process that we have to do when we teach upper level courses instead of lower level courses. Obviously what we say in Bio 101 is correct, but it's not the full picture. The students are not ready to handle all the exceptions and the complexities. When they go to Bio 400, then they can handle that complexity. So that is, is um, I guess it's an experience that academics would have, but for some reason they don't see it transferring to other, to other fields. Yes. Oh, that would have been great prep to have the academics know when you're going in, you're talking to bio prereq, <laughs> like not even the 100 level, you know, or so that that would be probably. And, and I also thought, as you were saying, that abstracts that academics have to write all the time is also. Uh, but sometimes the abstracts, as you know, from writing them, the every word matters and is it is loaded. And so that meaning could be lost, you know, or not, but I mean, at least it's technically accurate. Um, yep. Yeah. I find it curious, as you were describing the process of how you construct these reports and then simplify them so that they are digestible in three to anywhere from three to 15 minutes, that it mimics very much the process I've had to take when I've been teaching 
a lot of students, you mentioned that, oh, they didn't read their, they didn't read anything before they came in. They're not listening. They're playing on their smartphones. Like that sounds more like a class, that sounds more like an introductory level classroom. And then I also liked how you described that back and forth that the editor makes some changes and then you have to correct because some of the nuance has been lost. And to me, that strikes me as very similar to how we've been co-developing the Greenworks curriculum where I'll take what you've designed for the public policy, simplify it to something I think a scientist can understand, and then you'd have to correct it back because I missed some nuance there that that I didn't pick up because public policy isn't my field of expertise. Yeah, and I'd agree. And that dialogue went the other way where I'm trying to put like gold mines in open plains. And you're like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> they need to be near mountains. Like they can't be, you know, or I pretend that there's all these impacts. You're like, no, in the real world, that wouldn't happen. But I need it. It's just easier. Let me flood them. I don't know. <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned that because there's probably that same kind of, of tension when uh, you want to put a gold mine in a place where it wouldn't physically exist because of reality. Um, but then you could also imagine having that same kind of conversation with a politician where a politician might say, well, I really want this policy because I believe it will work, even if it's not, if it's unreality. And we see that a lot nowadays where people have become disconnected with reality. They choose the reality that they want and then they get very upset when reality kind of smacks them in the face. And trying to have those conversations now is becoming more and more difficult that, no, you may not know everything and you may need to listen to someone who does. Right, and they definitely don't, uh, it almost treats sort of uh, experts, scholars, scientists as ones that are stopping like oh you're always putting brakes on things i want to do and you say i can't and i don't like that answer we have human ingenuity you know so suddenly they they speak values and um technocrats scholars scientists they speak facts right so there's it, that divide is so wide and they do they get angry um I've had, uh, when I couldn't confirm that some program had um, basically negative effects on students, they wanted me to at least say, well, you can't prove that that has positive effects, but at least, you know, we're not harming them. And I was like, um, Madam Chair, Senator, you know, Smith, no, I can't tell you they aren't harming. And then they just threw up their hands. They were furious with me. Like, how dare you, like, just say we're, we're potential, you can't confirm. They just didn't like that I wouldn't you know, confirm what they wanted to do. Yeah. But I do like the, the fact that you're saying they speak values while the experts, let's say, speak facts, because obviously we as experts get upset with the politicians, the politicians get uh, upset with us, but both points of view are important and both points of view need to find a, a space. And I mean, the values that they are thinking of, they're not coming out of the blue, right? The, mm -hmm. the people want certain changes. The people need certain changes to happen. And so of course there has to be some sort of compromise that needs to be reached. And it's always to me so surpri surprising and kind of disheartening when it's, it seems like it has to be either one or the other. It, 
it seems like the two parties cannot see that there has to be a compromise that needs to be reached because both are valid. I agree. I hope, and we started to have an understanding um, when we would work, when I would specialize uh, in that same office in, in school districts, for example, over time. And I think about this with education too. I, you almost have a long-term deliberation plan. How am I going to absorb what they say, you know, and then reframe what I need to say in their own terms, you know, in terms of that, like what values are being triggered by the results I'm about to tell you, you know, so sort of to prepare for that conversation. But also think of, uh, and I don't mean this as patronizing as it sounds, maybe I do, I'm an academic too, <laughs> but um, you need to educate them. And so you need to bring them along on certain concepts and maybe choose a couple of like red line in the sands, like bottom line, I, I cannot make reality, you know, reality is this, and no matter how much you want it to change, I'm telling you this aspect won't change. Maybe there's wiggle room in some other areas, but but almost having like a game plan to like, what, what do I need to do to educate people on this point? Fauci did a little bit of this during the pandemic, I think, you know, a little like sort of taking baby steps in, um, yep. in educating people. Yep. I like how you talk about values because I know for climate change education, and we've discussed this at length uh, because there are some interesting studies that show that increasing science literacy um, doesn't actually overcome that partisan divide and it's more related to science curiosity. But I know for a lot of climate uh, science education, for at least the first decade of the century, the approach was let's just throw more facts at people and then they will accept that they are wrong and that the scientists are right. And it just started to create more and more of this partisan divide. And it turns out the most effective way of reaching people across the aisle on topics that they may disagree with, which could be climate change, it could be gun violence or, or restricting guns or vaccines was to talk about shared values because oftentimes the partisan divide is driven by values, certain values that are more important to one group than to another group, but the values are shared, just potentially not at not ranked at the same level of importance. And you could start crossing that aisle by connecting to the values because everyone loves their kids, uh, I, I'm assuming. <laughs> right. <laughs> at times, it, it varies, it goes up and down. <laughs> And, and I think to a certain extent, these values are also shared by the experts, by the scientists. I mean, we at the end of the day, we all just want to have decent lives, right? I mean, no matter which job we do, we just want to be able to go home to our families, our pets, our whatever interest we have and just have a decent life. That's, that's kind of what we want. And so uh, talking about that, I think it's useful. And I, I have seen in uh, colleges, at least in, in my institution, um, a shift a little bit towards that. So in, our, in my college, for example, we have a system that we call the flags system, where every course is connected to certain skills that are soft skills that the students would gain into that course. And it could be, I don't know, teamwork, it could be leadership, it could be anything um, that is not necessarily linked to what shape the DNA has, or you know what kind of rock this is, but it's linked to how would you uh, apply these soft skills into society. And, and it seems like that could be a good starting point, but the course that you are teaching, Tara, kind of brings this to a whole other, other level. 
Yes, what a great way of, of putting that, sort of recognizing uh, the moments of, especially in science, um, it's almost what, what, how else can this be used? What is this, how is this connecting to people, whether it's kids eventually seeking jobs, or um, I'm sure you have it with any kind of ethical considerations of some of the research, you know, that is done. So sometimes as scientists, we don't want to, we want to appear so objective that we, we are avoiding some value conversations when they're, they're relevant, even in, you know, sort of very um, effective, useful and easy ways that you described, you know, what, what other skills are they getting, you know, from learning this? Um, and so we could, and in our class, we talk both about understanding, you know, the science of climate change and, and thanks to Lev, so making a little, not sort of like climate change as Dr. Lennon feels like it should work for her and her weird power relationships of this game. But, you know, so sort of like sort of a respect for science and what really happens and then the consequences for real humans and, and the students and the role playing we've especially found, they hold on to those values. It certainly becomes all about, you know, protecting themselves, their fictitious nation. Like they, they adopt uh, a group identity very quickly. And so those values in that way come through. Um, and so uh, it's a, you're right. It's a good way for this, um, this course to sort of combine a respect for science and uh, a tangible feel of the pull of values. Yeah. And it's interesting what you mentioned about the identity, because I'm thinking about how we ran this with uh, Brazilian and Ukrainian students uh, in, in the fall back in October, November, and some of the uh, some of the Brazilian students within a couple of weeks really got into the role playing. Uh, they had their flags up as their background in the lectures, their country's uh, fictional flags, they awesome. made up the flags. They reacted aggressively to the nations that were not uh, participating. I've met some of the, uh, I've met some of the uh, students now in person. So that's been nice. And, and it's amusing because I can't see their faces because we're still masked up here um, in Brazil. And I, the first thing I asked them was what country were you a part of? And when they tell me which country they were a part of, I know immediately which student they are. Uh, mm. So that's, that's probably not good for me that I started creating those identities for them as well. Um, but it's very effective in, it's very effective in engaging them in the experience by giving them identities that they need to protect. Yes. And, and fill out those identities. So they get to sort of customize their nation group in a particular way. And they, so that creative input for active learning, I think is, and we all know that the active learning style is engaging for students. So, um, but where that engagement takes them is, is interesting. And so it's good to form it because it, it gets them involved. And I remember every one of my, when I think of every student that I've, and I've taught this so many years now, um, I don't even know how many iterations, but it's somewhere around a dozen to 16 or so. Um, I remember groups by, oh yeah, you're, you're the oligarchy Kurgan from 2016, you know, <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah. It, it almost seems like it would be the next um, evolution of this course would be almost from a psychology perspective, have the students actually have to swap countries so that they have to get themselves into a different position and see, oh, that's how my country was perceived by the other people, kind of help them develop the empathy side uh, of putting yourself into somebody else's shoes. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. And, you know, we 
yeah, to switch. We, we already switched up a little bit. I used to let students choose their group uh, years ago. And so, I don't know, maybe the last three years or two years, um, we've had it just randomized, more, more so for simplicity. But there was a logic to also, you don't get to, if you are libertarian, choose to be in the libertarian state, you, you get to, you, you have to, you have to be, you know, an absolute monarch or something like that. So um, it, it does. Uh, and, you know, there's another sort of uh, psychological point that um, is in the literature, and I, my, one of my earlier studies um, confirmed it, too, for this class. Um, everybody knows the engagement works, but uh, content understood. So if there's content in the course, is it remembered more? And it turns out that it is for active learning classes versus a traditional classroom. So because I teach political ideologies, they were my control group in, in the study. And so the pre to post in a given semester was similar. That is, you would understand what a socialist system is in both my control group and this class, which was the treatment, right? You know, sort of the engaged learning. Fast forward a year. So they've been out of the course for a full year. I've emailed them and they you know, I get this number of participants. The ones in this course are so engaged that they, it's almost like it hardwires what is a socialist state in their minds so that a year later they blew away the control group, you know, the ones that I teach in a big lecture hall, political ideologies, like they've, they've lost that information. Um, and so it was, and this has been confirmed in the literature that while content mastery isn't necessarily better in active learning at the moment, it retains longer um, when it's hard linked into your emotional experience in that engaging environment. So that, that might um, help us. I mean, and I would think in science, so much of it is active learning in the lab and the field, you know, so there might be similar sort of, you get something ingrained in you when, you're, um, when, you, when your senses are up in, yep. in the experience. No, I I completely agree, and uh, I know that there is a very strong push to change, uh, especially the intro-level courses that are, you know, these giant classrooms are kind of boring. You sit there and listen to the professor talk for two hours, uh, change them to active learning activities, at least a part of the time, so that, you know, you actually have to build your own 3D DNA double helix structure, and then you actually remember how the different parts come together. Th those kind of things really do do help quite a bit. But I'm I'm curious. So the I assume the majority of your students uh, come from are in political science, mm -hmm. right? That's their their uh, chosen field. How do they react when they are exposed to the science side? Do they like learning about it? Are they exasperated with it? What what is their reaction? It's almost like they see it as. What, what that's a barrier like how do I get over that barrier like what give me some power move can I and sometimes and Lev has probably pulled me back on this although um, he's given me I, I have my own course uh, you know especially with my own students when it's for ASU group versus other ones I will make judgment calls that you know probably are more politically, you know, based versus is that, could you get away with that? Because I'd say, oh, if you invest 200 resources, I'll let you build, you know, those solar plants, you know. Um, so I might not have, and Lev might be like, they don't have the materials, they don't have this, they don't have, you know, so there might be some. So, so let's see. So the quick answer is they look 
they are frustrated by them. They quickly try to find some power play to move, to maneuver around the reality of the science. And um, yeah, so they see it as an obstacle, not as, I don't know, not as much of a, how do we work with, because sometimes we give them detailed data sheets of um, these are your emissions and some, some dive into them just simply as data. Like they, they like the idea of, oh, there's a bad polluter. Let's go after that country and pressure them. And if they change, we're all good. As opposed to, huh, can we use our own scientific curiosity, come up with a unique plan? You know, so yeah, the default is, is power versus knowledge, I would say, for the vast majority of my political science students. Sounds a lot like the legislators you were talking about. Yeah. Oh, you can't confirm. Why can't you confirm what I think it's already true? <laughs> right, right. No, it's on building a bunch of, yeah, I'm grooming a bunch of little politicians. And I, I, sometimes, yeah, sometimes my class scares me. I have a, a very roller coaster love hate relationship with the class. I do love it at some point. I like suddenly hate all the students. And then like at the end, I like them again, or like, you know, at least I think fondly of them. <laughs> but I'm ready for the semester to end because we're all like emotionally tied in. And I've been through a lot of their emotional drama related to the class. So, <laughs> so yes. We certainly have some stories to tell on what's transpired in the classes in the past. Um, and I think what's curious is these power moves that uh, students make because they're often they're often trying to find a shortcut to get to the answer. And I noticed at least when I was observing the class and helping run the climate change scenario, the students would come to us for the answers. They would come to mm -hmm. us and say, what does the data say? What will happen if I do this? And us as the game masters have taken the approach, uh, used to take the approach of, well, if you do this, this will be the outcome. But in reality, it doesn't work that way. There is no game master that can tell the world what's gonna happen if you make these decisions. So I think an interesting approach that we're starting to develop, although we're still a bit farther away than I would like is creating this uh, information uncertainty version of the game where no one knows what the right answer is, including us, the instructors, because it's all kind of powered by uh, by a game engine that behaves according to set rules so that we start mimicking the real world where no, there is no teacher you can go to to, the, to get the answer. So how do you think that's going to work out for classes if we ever get that working? Oh, it, it's, uh, I think, a natural extension of something I've tried to do on a small scale where they want to, and this sounds weird, but they wanted to become a nuclear power and I made them, you know, oh no, they wanted to deploy a dirty bomb, one group. And so they wanted, they needed to get nuclear materials, uh, kidnap a nuclear scientist, you know, and then effectively deploy the bomb. Um, and so one, you know, sort of scheming country had this whole thing uh, that they wanted to do. So I worked with them and every step was a random um, uh, number draw or like a roll the dice so that Yes, I gave them sort of basic steps, but I couldn't tell the outcome like you have, you know, and if they failed, you know, they didn't get, you know, whatever the weighted roll of the dice, I would expose them to everyone for trying to do this dirty bomb. So they had multiple iterations where it was a random roll of the dice that decided, uh, you know, whether they could pursue the next step. So now that's not necessarily 
reality, but it's a little better than me saying, oh, good, that's a nice idea. And you have money. Okay, it worked automatically, regardless of the 10,000 factors that might actually interrupt your great plan. So I think it would be wonderful um, to have to to make to deal with that uncertainty um, in in a in a in a more concerted way. Excellent. So basically converting the class into Dungeons and Dragons. That's it. There's a reason why Dungeons and Dragons is popular, especially for people that, and I imagine it's popular among scientists, you know. Very much so. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was a very illuminating discussion. So happy to be here. Great to chat with both of you. And yeah, love the topic and I'm excited to hear all the podcasts. So Lev, you have worked with Tara for quite a while now. What, what have you learned from this conversation that you didn't already know since you worked with her for so long? <laughs> Um, I think I learned more about the legislative uh, process, and I, I'm surprised at how preparing materials for discussion and for consumption by legislatures, how it mimics the preparations I need to do for an introductory level class. It's, I think a lot of scientists have the assumption that they are high functioning professionals, that politicians are high functioning professionals as well. Um, but um, they're high functioning professionals often in terms of different values and different motivations, in which case it's not a matter of one technocrat talking to another technocrat. It's a technocrat talking to someone who's considering many more options than just what does the data tell me. They're also thinking about what do I need to do to get reelected? What do I need to uh, do to make sure Pam down the street doesn't call my phone again to complain? And it's, it, it's, it's interesting. And I think that is a really important lesson to draw, draw out of this conversation that treat it like an introductory level lecture in, in that maybe the person you're talking to has expertise, but probably not. And there's, there's benefit in simplifying materials down so that you don't lose them. Yeah, no, I... I completely agree. It was, it was very interesting. And to me, it was also very interesting to see the dynamic within uh, of the students within the class kind of already mimicking what the adults politicians are actually doing, because you can start seeing early on those patterns. And because they are still within the school system, you can sort of teach them how to recognize those patterns and in some cases either modify them or soften them a little bit so that they are more perceptive to uh, the input from, from other people. So courses like this that bridge across uh, not just multiple sciences, but across the classic uh, divide of the sciences and the humanities, the sciences and the arts are really powerful because they kind of put together the different sides of a human being. I mean, we all have these, these aspects within us. Yeah, and I think that's what's been the most fun about working on this project. It, it's very much, it activates the science part of me, but it also activates the humanities uh, part of me and the international travel and why we're doing an international podcast that has two international guests <laughs> so, <laughs> over a season. So, uh, yeah. 
that is that is is wonderful and i i hope we're going to see more and more of these examples as the colleges and universities develop a more complex approach to to education and kind of bridge across the silos of the disciplines yes and that sound means that it's time for your next meeting so that's going to be our sign off for this week indeed <laughs> so we will see you next week for our season finale See you next week. Bye, everyone. Music for this episode is The Diplomat by John Philip Sousa from Pixabay.com. You can learn more about the GreenWorks program at www.sciencevoices.org greenworks, including how you can participate. Global.Science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit organization. You can learn more about our work and support projects like GreenWorks at www.sciencevoices.org.